0: Welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maria Lee, General Practitioner and Medical Advisor in the health regulation sector. I analyze medical errors and clinical incidents for a living, and along the way, I've learned a lot about the principles and the mechanics of safe practice, which I'm hoping to share with you in this podcast. I hope you stay tuned, and if you learn something, please pay it forward and share your knowledge with other clinicians. That way, pod by pod, we can build a safer healthcare system together. Of course, the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely my own and are not the views of any of the organizations or bodies with which I am affiliated. So without further ado, let's get stuck into some safe practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. Today is another clinical topic episode, and our topic is young onset bowel cancer. And to discuss this topic, I have a very special guest. I have colorectal surgeon, Dr. Penelope D. Lacavalerie. Hi, Penelope. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Maria. Thank you for inviting me. Penelope, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? I
1: am a colorectal surgeon and I'm also a bow Cancer Australia official media spokesperson. I'm a strong advocate towards early detection and awareness around bowel cancer, in particular younger people than 50. It is a particular subject that I'm very passionate about. Through my work through Bowel Cancer Australia, I have been very lucky to be touched from the point of view of stories from young people with bowel cancer and the carers and the family members that have survived it. So I think it is really, really important to discuss this type of things in media,
0: like in yours, where colleagues
1: can listen to it and be aware of it.
0: Yes, it's a very important cause. And every year in Bowel Cancer Awareness Month, Penelope doesn't sleep. She doesn't eat. She just, (laughs) she becomes media spokesperson extraordinaire. And she's on every breakfast TV show, every news segment, every radio segment. I genuinely don't know how you get time to sleep during Bowel Cancer Awareness Month.
1: I love it. When you do what you love, you don't realise until the 1st of July, how did I do all this? For 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) But I
0: just love it and it's so important to bring awareness about it. It really makes a difference. Absolutely. And I really admire your stamina doing full-time clinical work, having a young family and also essentially taking on another full-time job as the Bowel Cancer Australia spokesperson. So thank you for everything that you do, and and it makes a huge difference. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Penelope, we're going to start with a scenario. And the scenario is this. A 29-year-old woman presents to her healthcare provider with a history of intermittent PR bleeding. So there are streaks of blood on the toilet paper, but there's no associated pain with defecation. On further questioning, she also recalls, Maybe a couple of episodes of mucus in her poo, she's not quite sure, doesn't always check. Now, her past history is completely unremarkable. There's no history of IBD, there's no abdominal pain, there's no weight loss, and importantly, there is absolutely no family history of bowel cancer. Her abdominal and PR examinations are unremarkable. They're normal. So this patient then says to her healthcare provider, look, I remember having hemorrhoids both times when I was pregnant with my two children. And look, this is probably just hemorrhoids, isn't it? Uh, Do you think you can just give me some hemorrhoid ointment? So that's the scenario. Penelope, I would love to ask you, what do you think of this scenario? Is it just hemorrhoids? Do we just send her away with some hemorrhoid ointment? I unfortunately
1: don't really like that much the word hemorrhoids, even though it's the bread and butter for a colorectal surgeon. Unfortunately we rationalize that anything that has to do with the bottom and blood is hemorrhoids. And yes, it is awfully common, but it is not the only reason to cause bleeding. And this 29-year-old, I'm assuming she's never had a colonoscopy. No. And it is completely impossible to fully reassure this patient that this is indeed only hemorrhoids. Because yes, she could have hemorrhoids, but she can also have polyps, she can have an early tumor, she can have colitis, she can have inflammatory bowel disease. So there's so many other things that we cannot just reassure by saying, yes, your symptoms sound like hemorrhoids, because all of the other conditions that I just mentioned also sound the same. Unfortunately, bowel cancer does not discriminate. Blood in your poo is never not. Presence of mucus is not normal, and that usually is an indication of either inflammation or maybe polyps are producing mucus. So I would recommend to her that she needs to have a colonoscopy, and then at the same time I reassure her: if you have hemorrhoids and these are internal, I can ban them or doing a ligation at the same time. So this patient needs a colonoscopy, and there is no way around it. And there will be a, lots of colleagues saying, "Well, you know, that means that every single person that has blood in the poo needs a colonoscopy." Well, yes. If this patient had never had a colonoscopy and these are the symptoms, they need a colonoscopy. This is different to somebody that had a colonoscopy a year ago or two years ago, and you're reassured that there's nothing within the colon, mm. and they just come with a hemorrhoid. You know, it's different than a patient that has never been investigated. And unfortunately, bowel cancer in Australia is very common. One in 15 people gets it. One in nine people with bowel cancer are actually under 50. One in nine. Wow. So about 1,700 people in Australia are diagnosed under 50 every year with bowel cancer. About 51% are women, 49% are men. So it doesn't discriminate between being a woman or a man. And about 86% of people with early bowel cancer actually experience symptoms. And these symptoms can be as long as two to three years before. So this patient could have started with a little cancer. And then if you treat it as a hemorrhoid and we don't do a colonoscopy, it will continue to grow if that's indeed the case. So in summary, she needs a colonoscopy. We can treat the hemorrhoids at the same time and then we can take it from there.
0: That's really interesting what you just said. If we had examined her and actually found evidence of external hemorrhoids, does that change the fact that she needs a colonoscopy?
1: No, because early cancers and polyps can overlap at the same time as having hemorrhoids. 99% of patients that are diagnosed with early bowel cancer are treatable.
0: 99%.
1: Yes. If you find them early, 99% can be treated just endoscopically or even with a minor operation and then they're cured. So if you have symptoms, you need to have a colonoscopy. Don't avoid and don't rationalise that this is just benign. And it could be, but it's better to be sure.
0: Okay. So for all the primary care professionals out there, This is a really important point. What you're saying is if our patients present to us with any worrying symptoms, for example, mucus in the poo or PR bleeding, even if our physical examination reveals the presence of hemorrhoids, if this person has not had a colonoscopy before, it is advisable to refer them for a colonoscopy.
1: Yes. So any bowel cancer symptoms and a good way of remembering this, and we love acronyms in medicine, right? So the acronym coming from the word bowel, so B is for blood in your poo, O is for an obvious change in your bowel habits, W is for a change in your weight or appetite without you're doing dieting or, you know, it's not induced, Um, and E is for extreme tightness, and that includes people with iron deficiency that have been treated and have not got better or have got worse even with treatment, and then the L is for lump or bloating in your abdomen. They're all very non-specific symptoms, but once you add one to the other to the other, your relative risk increases. So don't avoid and don't ignore, just refer. People born in the 1990s and onwards have doubled the risk of colon cancer than people born in the 1950s. We don't know why. There's lots of theories and there's lots of research happening. There is a theory that the microbiome gets affected by the early exposure to antibiotics, in particular during pregnancy and early childhood. There is also the fact that there is more obesity, and in particular, teenage and adolescent obesity is linked with an increased risk of early onset of bowel cancer. Then there is a lot of changes in what we eat, uh, much more processed foods. But, you know, we're not going to find one reason. With bowel cancer, there are so many factors that can affect, including, you know, hereditary causes.
0: Multifactorial.
1: Exactly. What we can do is to have a high index of suspicion If there is a symptom, investigate. So refer, and then we can talk about what we need to do next.
0: Okay, if we go back to our scenario, the healthcare practitioner tells the patient, okay, I'm going to refer you for a colonoscopy. And the patient turns around and says, oh, look, yeah, my my mother-in-law has colonoscopies every few years, but she's in her 60s. I'm in my 20s. Are you sure I need my colonoscopy this early in life? And by the way, nobody in my family has bowel cancer. Does that make a difference to your decision to refer me for a colonoscopy? What would you say to this patient, Penelope? I would say you have a symptom. It doesn't
1: mean that you have bowel cancer, but it needs to be investigated to make sure that you don't have any precancerous lesions like polyps and at the same time can also treat your hemorrhoids if that indeed requires treatment. The fact that you have no family history of bowel cancer does not exclude you because only 30% of people diagnosed with bowel cancer have a family member that have suffered bowel cancer. So therefore, nobody will be able to 100% reassure you unless we do a colonoscopy.
0: And the whole 29-year-old thing doesn't matter, does it? Oh, it doesn't. Doesn't matter if you're 29 or 59?
1: No, and unfortunately, bowel cancer is the number one cancer killer for people between 25 and 44. Really? Yes, number one in Australia. is the number one cancer killer for these people. So yes, it's not as common as people from 50, but when it happens between 25 and 44, which is this age that we don't have a screening program yet, we have to rely on being curious and if you have a symptom, it needs to be investigated.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. For people below the age of 45, there's no screening program. So if we as clinicians do not act when they present with a symptom, we don't act at all. Exactly. We miss it. We miss it, yeah. Um, And look, 29, look, my youngest patient was 33, and that patient had stage 3. But I know that your stats are probably even more alarming because you see a lot more of these patients. So would you mind giving us some age-related anecdotes So my youngest was 18 when diagnosed and also was stage three. Oh, wow.
1: uh, With no family history. Same thing, hemorrhoids. I got hemorrhoids. I got chronic constipation. And there it was, a small tumor. Um, And she ended up having Lynch syndrome, but she didn't have any family history. She was the index of her family, which meant that her brothers and sisters and mother and father, they all needed to have a colonoscopy as well.
0: That's a really good point that you just made. Having a syndrome does not always mean you have an extensive family of having that syndrome. Like you just said, your patient was the index case in that family. And somebody has to be the index case in a family, don't they?
1: Yeah, that's right. The mother, for example, had 21 polyps and the brother had about 12 polyps. So it's interesting that, you know, because she's so young, she's 18, the parents were younger than me. So they were younger than 50. So they would have developed a bowel cancer if we didn't have the index of the daughter. So you just need to be aware that this occurs in younger people. Like Bowel Cancer Australia campaign, you're never too young for it. It's not about scaring people. It's about making them aware that this is a possibility. Mm. And yes, you're most likely not to be you. But if it is you, it's better to find it early. The, there was a, a big paper published by Dr. Lamprell from Macquarie University who has found that the incidence in young people between 15 and 25 with bowel cancer has increased 266% in the last 30 years. We're talking about teenagers and young adults. You know, it's not very common, and I'm not saying that every single 15-year-old needs to go and have a colonoscopy. But but it is something that is happening, and it's happening in this generation, and we need to be aware of it.
0: I hear you loud and clear. 70% of people who have bowel cancer do not present with a family history of bowel cancer, so that's important. And the second thing is, there's no lower age limit for developing bowel cancer. If the patient has the symptom, we treat the symptom and don't make concessions for the age.
1: Exactly right. And thankfully, last month, the National Health and Medical Research Council, the NHMRC, approved updates on our clinical practice guidelines for the bowel cancer screening age. One of the recommendations is that we should be lowering the entry to our national screening program from 50 to 45. It also means that people between 40 and 45 will not receive the kit from the government, but they can also enroll in bowel cancer screening. As part of your, you know, well health check, you know, how you do from 40 years old, you know, you should check for your heart, you should check for your blood pressure, why not discuss as well, do we need to start doing your stool test? Let's talk about your family history, not only about colon cancer, but also about polyps because having family first and second degree with bowel polyps is also a risk and that increases your chances of also developing bowel polyps and also developing bowel cancer. So, you know, if you include it within your wellness checkup from 40, that's something that you can ask your patients. Hopefully, this will be financed by the government soon. And then from 45, people will start getting the kits. But until then, they can go to your GP specialist and get it
0: done From now if you are 45. As a GP, I really want to make a very important distinction at this point. What Dr. Penelope has just talked about is the NHMRC recommendations for lowering the age of screening. And as we all know, screening is for asymptomatic patients. I do not want there to be any confusion that if your patient comes to you with symptoms that you send them away with an FOBT. And I know that you guys are probably rolling your eyes at me going, Maria, of course we know, but it's better to have said the obvious rather than leave it unsaid and for there to be a minority of people who are confused. So if your patient comes in with symptoms, please do not send them away with, it, with an FOBT. A symptom requires a colonoscopy. Is that right, Penelope? That's right. And may I just
1: add, don't send them with the FOBT and then bring them back and the FOBT is negative and then ignore the symptom because they need a colonoscopy from the moment they had the symptom not because their FOBT is negative.
0: Yes, which is why I would say don't even send them the FOBT in the first place because you don't want to end up in that position where you've got a negative result and have to explain to your patient, well, why Why are you still referring me for colonoscopy if the result is negative? Just don't go there.
1: Exactly. And I can understand that GP specialists have their own networks that they refer to. If somebody says they don't need a colonoscopy and you're still suspicious and the patient has symptoms, please just refer to somebody else. At the end of the day, you are the biggest advocate after the patient. And talking about advocacy, there is an excellent paper that talks about the barriers around the diagnosis of bowel cancer from a huge survey from all bowel cancer survivors under 50. And the biggest barrier for their diagnosis is the fact that they were not referred for a colonoscopy because their age was the factor. Because you are too young to have bowel cancer, because you have no family history, and this is probably hemorrhoids. This is the biggest barrier, and the biggest delay is to get to the colonoscopy. And the other way around, you might be the clinicians, and you tell your patient, you need to have a colonoscopy, and then your patient says, well, no, no,
0: no, I'm too young. Yeah, then you have to convince them. <laughs> Absolutely. We show them this podcast. Where we say, did you hear Dr. Penelope say that one in nine bowel cancer diagnoses occur in patients under 50? That's right. I owe it to the
1: hundreds of people that I have met under 50 through Bowel Cancer Australia that have survived to share this because they need a voice. Being younger than 50, when you are at the peak of your financial career and having young families, even, you know, not even going through childbirth or not even getting pregnant, and it's a completely preventable disease because we know that all bowel cancers come from polyps. However, not all polyps become bowel cancer, which is good news. But
0: we need to remove all of them to be able to, to know which ones are which. What is the timeline from polyp development to cancer development?
1: So it depends on the type of polyp. And of course, it depends if you have a hereditary condition or not. But if we talk about you know, the garden variety polyp, which is the tubular adenoma, we know that they follow a prescriptive pathway from the moment that one cell starts having DNA mutations until the point that they develop a cancer is about 10 years. However, there's other types of polyps and those are the ones that are called serrated adenomas. And they can develop into a cancer a little bit more unpredictably and a little bit faster. And that can happen sometimes between three years and five years. So all of these pathways that polyps have to go through in order to become a cancer is where we base our surveillance from. The number of polyps that we remove and which type they are and how big they are, that's how we have you know guidelines and why we do things in a year or in three years or in five years or we discharge you. But we can only have that information if you have a colonoscopy.
0: Yeah, always goes back to that. I think sometimes the barrier for people of all ages, but particularly young people, for going through with a colonoscopy is the perception that a colonoscopy is a really painful, uncomfortable, embarrassing procedure. Um, So they may understand the importance of doing the procedure, but they may find ways of delaying it or try to find a window in their busy life when they can fit it in. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about the process of preparing and undergoing a colonoscopy and maybe demystify some of that fear. So all procedures, of course, have possible risks and complications, but you know,
1: this is what we call um, a minor procedure, meaning you do not need a general anesthetic, so you need a twilight sedation where you're still breathing, you don't have any tube in your mouth, and you're just very, very deep asleep and you don't feel or remember anything. The worst part of the colonoscopy is the preparation. It is the worst part because you will have the afternoon before and the morning of the procedure will have to go to the toilet a lot. You will have the liquid and then within an hour you will start going to the toilet. There is not pain usually. People don't get pain in the tummies. Some people may need an admission the day before, in particular people that are you know, incontinence. I tend to prioritize at the start of the list people who are diabetic or they have comorbidities or they are pregnant or they are lactating. So we can tailor this procedure for you um, to make it easier for you. It entails, you know, half a day in a, in a, in a hospital because then you have to come in early and then wake up and then, you know, talk to me and then eat something and then off you go. And the only post-op recovery from it usually is that you should not be driving within the first 24 hours because of the sedation. Um, If we take some polyps out or if we do something to the hemorrhoids, there can be a little bit of blood or spotting in your underwear. So we advise you to use a pad. Um, And that's pretty much it. Some people even have this awake, you know. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, We can do it awake. And I have done this at least once every few months. So overall, it's a minor procedure. I understand that some people get worried about it, but out of all procedures that you can have, this is probably the
0: easiest one. So to reiterate, it's a day procedure. So the day before, you drink some bowel prep liquid and you go to the toilet a lot to poo. Uh, I haven't personally done it, but I've had family members do it. And what I can say from my observation anecdotally is that it's not a painful process like you said. It's just going to the toilet to poo a lot. They're still functional, they're still walking around the house watching TV. Um, It's just that they're going to the toilet a lot. Then they go in in the morning, uh, they have their procedure and they're out the same day. They seem basically normal by the time they leave hospital. Maybe a bit tired but nothing to write home about and by the next day they're pretty much back to completely normal. From what I've observed from many, many patients who've done it and also from family members who've done it is that it's not a huge deal. It's not one of those procedures where you're incapacitated with discomfort or pain. Exactly right. And it's interesting and very reassuring to hear you say that pregnant and lactating women can also undergo colonoscopies. Yes, that's all right. So we, as primary healthcare physicians, should not say to somebody, oh, you're pregnant, let's wait until you're not, or oh, you're breastfeeding, let's wait until you're not, and then let's refer you. We shouldn't delay it for those reasons, should we?
1: No, in particular, if there there is clear symptoms, refer, and then we can assess the risk, and then we can discuss with them uh, when we should be doing this. Because unfortunately, although it's not very common, bowel cancer during pregnancy is not zero. And it does, unfortunately, carries worse outcomes because of the fact that we delayed the colonoscopy. I'm very suspicious when people are pregnant and the iron deficiency doesn't get better despite being treated. And then you think maybe we should be just doing a colonoscopy, not a full colonoscopy. We can do it awake, no sedation. At least we see the left side of the colon where 85% of the cancers come out. Um, You know, it doesn't mean that every single pregnant woman that has iron deficiency needs a colonoscopy, but if you have given an infusion and there is only peer bleeding and nothing else, well, I think it
0: merits a discussion with a specialist. That's a very good point. Now, look, if we referred every iron deficient pregnant woman for a colonoscopy, we would refer every single pregnant woman. But you make a very good point is that if it doesn't respond to treatment or if symptoms suggest possibly bowel cancer, uh, then not to delay until that woman is not pregnant. Because from my perspective, I I don't have the the knowledge to have that nuanced discussion. I lose nothing by referring. Even if I refer the patient to you and you have a nuanced discussion and together you make an informed decision to delay, that's still better than me telling the patient, I'm actually not going to refer you until you're not pregnant anymore. Because that's the opportunity cost of time and that's the opportunity cost of the patient being able to make an informed choice, isn't it? That's right. And
1: then we can actually keep an eye on things. I can even do a rigid cystoscopy that I can see up to 30 centimetres in in the rooms at the same time that they come. In this day and age of tailored, personalised, patient-centred care, you know, there's no one size fits all or one pathway fits all.
0: Yeah, and, it, and look, sadly, it does happen. I've certainly heard of patients who were diagnosed um, either during pregnancy or very soon afterwards, which means that they probably had the cancer while they were pregnant. One particular case is uh, a person that I know who's very active on social media in the advocacy space for bowel cancer. I won't mention names because I don't have their permission, but they were diagnosed with bowel cancer with very, very young children. We're talking infants, So almost inevitably that person would have had bowel cancer at the time she was pregnant. So it does happen. I think the take-home message for me listening to you is if I am in doubt, I should just refer to someone like yourself to have that nuanced discussion with the patient rather than second-guessing myself.
1: Yeah, and if if you have symptoms, if the patient comes with symptoms, they need a colonoscopy. They don't need an FOBT. They don't need a follow-up in two weeks and see how we're going. Because bowel cancer can have bleeding intermittently. Doesn't have to be every day. Doesn't have to be heavy. Doesn't have to be a lot or with clots or maroon. Or, yeah, I don't I, really all of this. We they teach us all of this in medical school, and it really doesn't matter. It's just blood. <laughs> I can mm-hmm. have <laughs> someone with a lot of it and a little bit, and they both have cancer. It, if there is blood, it needs to be investigated.
0: Yes, because if we go back to first principles. Cancers, by definition, are not organised growths. They're, they're chaotic. That's that's what makes them cancer. So there's no rule book to say that the cancer must bleed every day. It might bleed on the 1st of January and then not again until the 17th of December. Like you said, a bleed is a bleed. It needs to be taken seriously. I remember a case exactly like this. Not my patient. Young patient presents with PR bleeding, was told to go home and monitor it uh, and... Life got busy, whatever, uh, and then a few years later was diagnosed with bowel cancer. And the question that obviously came up at that point was if it had been taken seriously when they first presented, would it have been diagnosed at an earlier stage that was more amenable to treatment? And that is the type of thing that none of us want on our conscience. We don't want to think back and think, could we have made a difference? Penelope, we've covered a lot of territory but if I said, give us, in a nutshell, the take-home messages from this episode, what would they be?
1: Know the symptoms of bowel cancer are non-specific. Always take them seriously and refer, refer, refer. You're never too young to have bowel cancer. So forget about the age. Like you said to me a few months ago, treat the symptom, not the age.
0: Treat the symptom, not the age. We need to remember that. Penelope, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving us your passionate advocacy for this very important topic. I knew that this was important, but it's not until I talked to you again that I realized just how common this condition is and how deadly it is in our young people. So it's so important that you've come on this podcast to tell us that there is no lower age limit for bowel cancer and to not ignore symptoms. What we would do. For a 70-year-old, what we would do for a 55-year-old, we should also do for a 25-year-old. I have no doubt that everyone listening will have learned a lot from this episode. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Maria, for giving me a medium to bring the concerns of young people who have been diagnosed with bowel cancer. This is something that is really up there in, in one of my passions. And if I want to be known about something and have some legacy out there is for being advocate for these people with early onset bowel cancer. So thank you for inviting me into your excellent podcast.
0: And what a legacy it is, Penelope. And every Bowel Cancer Awareness Month, if you keep track of Penelope's social media, you'll see her basically on every major media channel talking about this topic. (laughs) Uh, So if you don't follow Penelope already, her Instagram is at mysydneysurgeon, all one word. That's right, and that's my website as well, My Sydney Surgeon website, Instagram. Yes. Excellent. All right. So this is the part of the episode where I ask you guys for a favour. If you found the information in this episode helpful, please share it with your colleagues because the more clinicians that know about these tips and tricks and principles of safe practice, the better it is for all of us, whether as practitioners or as consumers of the healthcare system. And that's all the time we have for today. I'm Dr. Maria Lee, and this is Dr. Penelope D. Lacaballerie. Until next time, stay safe.